0: Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. I remember when she went missing. There were so many unpleasant comments. Remarks about her looks about her possible involvement. And I remember thinking, she is a child. How can people be this way? We watched the news unfold. The break-in, the murder, her disappearance. I recall people saying, she must have planned it, or this is about a boy. But the reality of the situation was far worse. It was far more terrifying. Come with me to October 15th, 2018. When 13 year old Jamie Kloss of Barron, Wisconsin disappears from the family home, her parents' bodies left behind in the wreckage of the place where she grew up. On October 15th, around 12:53 a.m., Deputy James Presley was in the Barron County Dispatch Center when a 911 call came in. Barron County 911, where your- is your somebody is on a farm. Hello. Hello. That sound you heard in the background, that's screaming, and I'm not playing the whole call because it's both distorted and it's upsetting. Dispatchers traced the call to 1268 13 and a half Avenue, U.S. Highway 8, west of Barron. Deputy Presley and two other officers, Deputy Eric Sedani and Deputy John Fick, rushed to the location, which was about three miles away. As they traveled to the address, they passed one vehicle, This car was headed in the opposite direction. It pulled over and let the three coding police vehicles go by. What they didn't know, what they couldn't know, is that 13-year-old Jamie Kloss was in the trunk of that car. Officers rolled up to the Kloss residence about 1 a.m., and the house was mostly dark. They saw two lights on inside. So they approached the home and noticed that while the exterior door, what I would call a storm door, was closed... The interior door was slightly open, and it showed signs of damage. Detective Nelson would later explain that it appeared that someone shot the door with a shotgun, allowing them access to the Kloss home. Cautiously entering the residence, the front door wouldn't open all the way, because the body of James Kloss was on the floor, his legs blocking the door, his head mostly under the kitchen table. According to a criminal complaint, James Kloss had, quote, significant trauma to his face and head from a shotgun wound, and, quote, there was blood and brain splattering on the west wall directly behind the wooden entrance door. It was clear that his injuries were not compatible with life. As the officers moved further into the house, they found a second body, this one in the bathroom. Denise Kloss was in the bathtub. Like her husband, she'd been shot in the head at close range. The damage to her head was significant and also not compatible with life. Officers moved through the home looking for other people. Perhaps someone had survived and could explain what the hell happened in that house, but they found no one else. With the house cleared, they notified the coroner and probably the chief of police. You know, in most communities, a double homicide like this is unusual and newsworthy. Best to start working it and stay on top of it from the go. As they searched the interior and exterior of the Kloss home for evidence, they found footprints from a tactical boot and shell casings from a shotgun. As they searched, there was a notification from base. Deputies learned that James and Denise Kloss have a 13-year-old daughter, Jamie. Was there any sign of the girl? The deputies exchanged looks. No. While they'd seen a child's bedroom, there was not any sign of a child. Within minutes, the Amber Alert was issued, and that's what many of us woke up to that morning, the Amber Alert. The picture of Jamie with her thick, dark blonde hair, wide green eyes, and shy smile. She was described as five feet tall and 100 pounds, just a wisp of a girl. And this was the picture that led so many people to assume, incorrectly and unfairly, that Jamie must have been in on the murders. That she, a child, was somehow responsible for what happened in Barron, Wisconsin that night. And yeah, I know I keep bringing this up. It made me angry then, and apparently, I'm still mad about it. Alongside her picture was news of the double homicide, the murder of her parents. As police are searching for Jamie and searching the house for evidence that will explain just what the hell happened and why... Dr. Veena Singh with the Midwest Medical Examiner's Office conducted James and Denise's autopsies. It was ruled that 56-year-old James died from a shotgun wound to his head and neck, while 46-year-old Denise died from a shotgun wound to her head. There were no surprises in Dr. Singh's findings. Jamie Kloss, wherever she is, is now an orphan. They will search for Jamie, and tips and leads are worked, run down, followed, the Barron County Sheriff's Department does their best, but there is no thread long enough or strong enough to bring her home. I think that many people, at least the ones who didn't believe she was party to the deaths of her parents, believed that Jamie Claus met with foul play. They thought that Jamie wasn't coming home at all. And just like I remember the day that Jamie went missing, I remember the day she was found. I think my exact words were, holy shit. That's when I started texting others on the Missing in Michigan team. Did you see the good news? They found Jamie Kloss. They found her, and she's alive. And listeners, that's not exactly true. We didn't find Jamie. Jamie Kloss, a 13-year-old girl who saw her parents gunned down in front of her, she saved her own life. It was January tenth, 2019, and just like October fifteenth, 2018, it started with a phone call. Kristen Kasinkas placed a call to 911. I'm going to play a short snippet of the call for you here. Douglas County 911. Hi. I have um, a young lady at my house right now, and she just says her name is Jamie Kloss. Okay, what's your address? 14102 Eau Claire Acre Circle. It's in Gordon, Wisconsin. Okay, have you seen her photo, ma'am? Yes, it As, is her. I 100% think it is her. You, okay. 100%. Does it look like she's going to run? No, she's sitting down, and she's relaxing. What's your name? Yep. What's your name, ma'am? Kristen Kaczynski. Kristen sounds slightly out of breath, perhaps shocked that this child is sitting in her home, perhaps frightened that the violent kidnapper who took Jamie could be searching for her right now. Thankfully, Jamie Kloss is safe. "'Sitting in her house, relaxing, as Kristen put it. "'Did you notice that the dispatcher asked if Jamie was going to run? "'I'm wondering if the dispatcher thought Jamie was in on what happened to her. "'A female deputy, Dit Brender, and Deputy Carey respond to the kasinka's house "'to check if this is indeed Jamie Kloss. "'And it's her. "'They asked Jamie if she was hurt, and she said she wasn't. "'Jamie didn't have any marks, bruises, or other signs of injury.' She was wearing socks and a dirty pair of worn New Balance sneakers. They appeared to be men's shoes. The left shoe was on her right foot, and the right shoe was on her left foot. Ditbrender later reported the shoes were obviously not Jamie's. Jamie was also wearing a plaid zip-up fleece jacket, a white spaghetti-strapped tank top, and leggings. Deputies are understandably worried that the kidnapper could be out looking for Jamie, so Ditbrender moved Jamie to her squad car the deputy and child went to the Gordon Fire Hall for a medical evaluation before going to the hospital. As they drove, Jamie told Ditbrender some details of what happened to her. She said that Jake Patterson killed her parents. Jake was gone right now, but he was going to be back by midnight. She didn't know where he was. Jake doesn't work, and he used to be in the military. He drives a red car. As the deputy is driving Jamie with two squad cars following, they passed a red car with a man behind the wheel. Ditbrender asked Jamie if that was Jake's car, and she said she didn't know. Ditbrender radioed one of the squad cars following them, asking them to run the plates. The car came back to a Katie Patterson. Deputies noticed the car has a broken taillight, and they watched as the car drove past the address it was registered to. So they lit up the red car and pulled it over. Sergeant DeRosa was backed up by Sergeant Engelman on the stop. They asked the driver to put his hands in the air and open the door. Then they asked the driver what his name was. He said, Jake Patterson. The sergeants then asked Jake to step out of the vehicle. As he did, Jake said, I know what this is about. I did it. When Ditbrender told Jamie that they had him, that they'd taken Jake into custody, Jamie smiled at the news. Brender would transport Jamie to St. Mary's Hospital in Superior so she could be observed. There were officers guarding her door around the clock. In the morning, when she was found to be in good health, she was released. And finally, we get to see a new picture of Jamie, this time with her aunt. And there's Jamie with a small fuzzy dog. She looked safe and happy and very, very young. We'll be right back. It was a woman named Jeannie Nutter who found Jamie, standing in the snow, asking for help on that January day, and it was Jeannie who hurried Jamie to the Kasinka's residence. The Kasinka's brought Jamie and Jeannie into their home and made the 911 call advising law enforcement that Jamie was safe. When interviewed, Jeannie told police that she and her dog went for a walk around Eau Claire Acres Circle around 3.30 p.m. The walk took about 40 minutes because it was an icy January day. Jeannie explained that many of the houses in the neighborhood were seasonal and did not have people currently living in them. When Jeannie got back to her driveway, she saw a young girl in the road. The girl started yelling and begging for help. She said, I'm Jamie Kloss. Please help. I want to go home. Jamie told Jeannie that the man who abducted her was named Jake Patterson. Jeannie said, Jamie was in shock, tired. Her hair was matted and her clothes were dirty. She was wearing large men's shoes and could barely walk in them. Jeanie had to think quick. She didn't want to take the girl to her home because she knew Jake Patterson lived just two doors down, and besides, she and Jamie would be alone there. She chose the Kasinka's house because, like her, they lived in the area year-round and she knew they'd be home. When she knocked on the Kasinka's door, Peter answered, letting the two of them in the house. Jeannie asked him to call 911, saying, This is Jamie Kloss. Peter recognized Jamie and his wife, who was closer to the phone. She made the 911 call. They put Jamie on the sofa and wrapped her in a blanket while waiting for police to respond. While his wife was on the phone and Jeannie sat with Jamie, Peter got out his shotgun and loaded it. His wife and his children were at home, and he remembered the circumstances of Jamie's kidnapping. He wanted to be ready to handle any trouble. Thankfully, the police arrived quickly and took Jamie into their custody. While Jamie Kloss is at St. Mary's Hospital for observation, police are ready to interview Jake Patterson. For this interview, Special Agent Joe Welsh with the Wisconsin Department of Justice joined Detective Nelson of the Barron County Sheriff's Department. In 2019, Jake Thomas Patterson was 21 years old, the son of Patrick and Deborah Patterson. His parents split up when Jake was seven. Jake graduated from Northwood High School in 2015. After graduation, he joined the Marines. In 2017, he was at boot camp in San Diego, but was released on a medical because he experienced pain while running. Once his dream of being a Marine was over, he drifted from job to job not staying anywhere for very long. He worked one place for a total of two days. Jake didn't date. He said he wasn't interested in that stuff. At the time of the attack, Jake was living with his father at the house in Gordon, Wisconsin. But his dad was rarely home, preferring to stay with his girlfriend who lived much closer to his job. This meant that Jake had the house to himself except on Saturdays when dad would show up for a few hours. Jake had no close friends and mainly hung out by himself. While investigators were ready to push Jake, they didn't need to. Patterson was willing to talk. He told them, I know my rights. And then he admitted that, yes, he killed James and Denise Kloss before kidnapping Jamie. He said that he'd planned to kidnap a girl, not a young girl, but someone 12 or 13 years old. He'd planned this for a couple of years, maybe as early as 2016. Then one day, he saw Jamie. She was getting on the school bus, and he decided she was the one. That was the girl he was going to kidnap. While Jake daydreamed about the kidnapping, he tried to envision how he'd pull it off. Eventually, the murder-kidnapping idea came to him, and he planned meticulously. First, he went to Walmart and bought a balaclava. That's a warm-knit cap that pulls down over your face with openings for the eyes and mouth. In my opinion, balaclavas are pure nightmare fuel, so of course, that's what he went with. Then, he started thinking about weapons. He settled on the Mossberg shotgun instead of a rifle because they're common and they're hard to trace. They're also more powerful than a rifle. The Mossberg belonged to his father. He visited the Kloss home twice before the October kidnapping. Once, there were many cars at the house, so he aborted his plan— Another time he went, the house was well-lit with people walking around. He felt that wasn't the right time either. Before he went to Jamie's house on that fateful October day, Jake prepared for the kidnapping. He put a steak knife in his pocket. He grabbed a flashlight and duct tape. He took his dad's 12-gauge shotgun and six shotgun shells. He wore gloves while he wiped down the shotgun and the shells so there would be no fingerprints or DNA left behind. With the gloves on, he loaded the weapon. And like something out of a nightmare, Jake took a razor and shaved his face and all of his hair off. Then he showered. He didn't want to leave any trace of himself behind in the Kloss home. He dressed in steel-toed work boots, jeans, and a black jacket. He put on the balaclava and two pair of gloves. He took his cell phone and left it at the house so his movements would not be traced. Finally, he replaced the license plate on his car with one that he'd stolen previously. He wanted to make his car harder to track if someone spotted it. He also disconnected the dome light inside of his Red Ford Taurus and went to work on the trunk. First, he disabled the emergency release, and then he removed the interior light. Jake finally felt ready to get the girl he'd thought about for so long. As he drove to the Kloss home, turning off his headlights about a block away, he coasted the car into their driveway. And as he moved from the car to the door, he had to give himself a little pep talk. You have to do this. You've wanted this for so long. You can do it. Jake really wanted to take Jamie that night, and he was willing to kill anyone in the house. He didn't want to leave witnesses behind. He said the whole incident lasted about four minutes. As he approached the door, he saw James Claw standing near the picture window. Jake told James to get down, but James didn't listen. James moved to the front door and asked Jake for his badge. Apparently, he thought Jake was a cop. When he saw James looking through the glass panel in the front door, Jake fired the Mossberg and James collapsed, his body sprawled on the ground, partially blocking the entrance to the home. When Jake tried to open the door to the Kloss home, it was bolted, and he had to use the Mossberg to shoot it open. Once inside the house, he saw the Kloss dog running down the hall. He turned on his flashlight and saw that the dog was standing outside the only door that was closed. Jake checked the other rooms quickly and found no one, so he returned to the closed door. He hit it several times with his shoulder, but it wouldn't budge. And that's because Jamie and Denise had barricaded the door with a cabinet, but Jake did make his way into the bathroom. Once inside, he found the shower curtain closed and yanked it off the bar. Behind the curtain were Denise and Jamie. The mother had her arms protectively around her child. Jake also realized that she'd been on the phone, likely calling 911. He tried to take the phone away from her, but she wouldn't let go. Jamie cried out, give him the phone, and Denise released it. Jake threw the phone to the ground and told them in a quiet voice, Just be quiet. Just do what I say and I won't hurt you. He handed Denise a roll of duct tape and told her to put the tape over Jamie's mouth, but Denise didn't do it the way he wanted her to, so Jake did it himself. He wound the tape all the way around Jamie's head, then he tied her wrists and ankles with tape. With Jamie standing beside him, Jake pointed the shotgun at Denise in the tub and pulled the trigger. Then he dragged Jamie from the room. Jake told detectives that he shot her in the head because headshots are the best way to kill someone. After firing the shotgun in the enclosed space of the bathroom, Jake was momentarily deafened. He wasn't wearing ear protection. He told Jamie to walk, and she wouldn't. He told detectives he'd forgotten that he'd bound her ankles, so he ended up dragging the girl through the house to his car. As he got near the front door, he slipped in the pooling blood near the body of James Closs. Once outside, he dropped Jamie on the ground on the driver's side of the car. He put the gun in the car and popped the trunk. He scooped Jamie up, loaded her into the trunk, and locked it. In the car, he peeled off the mask and began driving. It was seconds later that he was passed by squad cars en route to the Closs home. They asked Jake what would have happened if the police had stopped his car, and he told them he would have fired on the officers with the Mossberg. Jake revealed that he instantly regretted the murder and the kidnapping, mainly because of his fear of getting caught. When he got Jamie back to the house, she was crying and filthy. He gave her clean clothes to wear, and she fell asleep almost immediately. And listeners, I'm guessing that she fell asleep quickly because she was in shock. We're going to take another quick break. Jake said he initially thought he got away with the murders and the kidnapping when he wasn't caught in the first two weeks. He said he knew he'd gotten away with it because of his careful planning. You see, he'd never met Jamie. He'd never spoken to her on social media. He didn't even know her name until they got back to his house. Over the next few weeks, Jake made several trips to Walmart to buy things for her, items like pajamas, socks, and underwear. He burned the clothing Jamie had worn, as well as his gloves and balaclava. He got rid of the knife and the stolen license plate, but he slept with the Mossberg near his twin bed. He was afraid the cops would come for him. He told the detectives that he usually slept in bed with Jamie, and while he'd envisioned a sexual relationship between them, after he killed her parents, he couldn't bring himself to do anything like that with her. Wanting to keep her contained, he pushed his bed into the corner and made a nest for Jamie underneath where she was expected to remain when he was away. He got totes and weighted them down so he could block her in. She knew that he would know if she tried to escape and she was compliant. Some days she was under that bed alone for 12 or more hours. While under the bed she had no food or water, no access to the toilet either. Jake, who was unemployed, had the house to himself except when his dad would visit on Saturdays. He would order Jamie into her spot under the bed and turn on the radio to cover any noise she might make. When the two were alone, they would watch TV, play games, cook, even sometimes they'd go for walks around the yard. The Patterson house was on more than two acres of land. One day, Jamie heard on the radio that her parents were dead, and she became quite upset. Jake realized that she'd blocked out what had happened the night he took her. Jake said, quote, I just felt so bad like this every time I looked at her. I was like, I can't, like, I couldn't, literally couldn't believe that I actually did this. Jamie did disobey Jake and get out from under the bed on two occasions. When he found out, he screamed at her, pounding the walls and telling her that he treated her well and she was too afraid to cross him after that. At Christmas, he bought presents for her, which she opened. He'd bought her new clothing. On the day she escaped, Jake had gone out to visit his mom and apply for jobs. When he returned and she wasn't under the bed, he ran outside and saw her footprints. He went to the car to drive around and look for her. That's when police pulled him over. He looked at the investigators and said, Jamie deserves to be free. And listeners, we've heard a lot from Jake. So I'd like to share Jamie's side of what happened. And this comes from a January 11th, 2019 interview that Jamie participated in. It was a forensic interview with FBI agent Bonnie Freeze. Jamie told Freeze that on the night of the kidnapping murder, she was in bed just after midnight when her dog started barking. She got up to see why the dog was barking and noticed a car coming up the driveway. Jamie woke her parents and told them about the car. Her father told her that there was a man with a gun and she and her mother hid in the bathroom with the door closed and barricaded. They heard a gunshot and knew James was hit. Denise called 911 and Jake broke down the bathroom door telling Denise to hang up the phone. Jake told Denise to cover Jamie's mouth with the tape and then Jake shot Denise Kloss. Jamie told Freeze that she'd never seen Jake before and he was dressed all in black including a hat and a face mask. He taped Jamie up and forced her into the trunk. Jake started driving, and moments later, Jamie heard sirens. She thought that she was in the trunk of that car for about two hours, and then they arrived at his house. Jake later told her it was his house. Once inside, Jake told her to get undressed. He took all of her clothes and put them in a bag. Then he removed the tape from her hands, mouth, and ankles. As he did this, he said something about no evidence. She said he gave her other clothes, and she doesn't know what he did with the bag of her things. Jamie said she had to stay under Jake's bed when he left the house or when his friends or family came over. He would make her stay there for up to 12 hours with no food, water, or bathroom breaks. Jamie said that one time, Jake got really mad at her and hit her really hard on her back. The object he hit her with looked like a handle for something used to clean blinds. She said it hurt when Jake hit her. She said she didn't remember what she did to make him so mad, but he said that if it happened again, the punishment would be worse. Jamie said that on January 10th, the day she escaped, Jake told her he was going to be gone for a few hours. He made her go under the bed, and then he left. After Jake left, Jamie was able to push the bins and weights away from the bed and crawl out. She left the house, headed towards the road to Jeanie, who she saw walking her dog. Jamie told Jeanie that she'd been kidnapped by Jake Patterson. From there, they went to a house and called 911. There was one small mercy in this case, and that's that Jake Patterson was willing to take a plea rather than fight things out at trial. On March 27, 2019, just 10 weeks after Jamie freed herself... Jake pled guilty to two counts of intentional homicide and one count of kidnapping. Jake said he took a plea because he didn't want Jamie and her family to, quote, worry about a trial. On his way out of the courtroom, Jake said, bye, Jamie. At Patterson's sentencing hearing, his lawyer said that Jake was truly sorry and showed that via his guilty plea. He said, quote, Mr. Patterson knows and has accepted that he's going to die in prison. He hasn't asked us to argue for anything else. But Jake's attorney did ask for a shot at supervised parole in 2072. Jake told the court, quote, I'll just say that I would do, like, absolutely anything to take back what I did. I would die. I don't care about me. I just, I'm sorry. That's all. The prosecution reminded the judge that while Jake might be sorry, it was Jamie who freed herself from captivity. Jamie's Aunt Jennifer told the court that Jamie, quote, doesn't have a normal life. We live in fear every day. Watch our backs, have home security. We don't feel safe. And while Jamie did not address the court, there was a lengthy statement read by her attorney, which read, in part, quote, He stole my parents from me. He stole almost everything I loved from me. For 88 days, he tried to steal me and didn't care who he hurt or killed to do that. He should stay locked up forever. On May twenty fourth, 2019, Jake was sentenced to life in prison. Judge James Babbler said, quote, "...there is no doubt in my mind you are one of the most dangerous men ever to walk this planet. You are the embodiment of evil, and the public can only be safe if you are incarcerated until you die." With Jake locked up for the rest of his life, Jamie turned to what remained of her family and tried to get back to something resembling normalcy. A GoFundMe raised more than $50,000 for her expenses, and Hormel Foods, where her parents worked, they gave Jamie the $25,000 reward they'd offered for information on the case. In January of 2021, Jamie's aunt released a statement saying that Jamie takes life day by day, and she's doing good. She's taking dance, she participates in school activities, and many other things as much as she can with COVID restrictions. Jamie is surrounded by lots of loved ones. Her aunt said, quote, "...we are very thankful for everything that happened on this day two years ago, for Jamie's bravery and for Jeannie, Peter, and Kristen, for all being in the right place at the right time and keeping Jamie safe." We are still very thankful for the community, to the whole world for caring and being there, and to law enforcement who worked tirelessly to seek justice. As for Jake Patterson, he registered as a sex offender since he kidnapped Jamie. In July of 2019, Jake was transferred to a maximum security prison in New Mexico, Wisconsin corrections officials recommended that he serve his time out of state due to security concerns because of the notoriety and publicity. But about a month after he arrived in New Mexico, Jake fought with another inmate. They didn't want Jake in their pod because of his crimes. At this time, Jake Patterson is serving his sentence at an undisclosed location. He is not listed on any inmate locator database. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I hope you'll support the show by visiting our sponsors. You can find more information on them in the show notes. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe.